Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin, Lucy and Lauren. On this week's episode, we'll be covering plane safety and what actually goes into keeping aircraft safe and the history and development of actual significant steps in airplane safety, including the black box, dealing with corrosion and fatigue, and how we can actually keep our planes flying when disaster strikes. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week our City of Science is the city of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And the reason why we're speaking about this is that a plane flight 370 from Malaysian Airlines has gone missing. We don't know the true fate of this plane as of yet. We are undertaking many search operations to actually find that and the 239 people on board. Uh, but what we do know is that the plane itself has has gone missing and it is unlikely to now still be in the air. And what we're trying to do is get to the bottom of what actually happened to this plane. Now, we're not going to get into speculating about what's happened to this plane. Obviously, it's an ongoing investigation and we don't actually know the facts about what's happened just yet. But what we are going to do in today's show is actually look at the science behind keeping airplanes safe and what we've done to actually make sure that our planes can be safe and keep us in the air. Just how risky it is to actually fly in planes. So our thoughts and condolences go out to everyone who has family, friends or loved ones on the planes that are missing and we hope that they can get uh, to the bottom of this relatively quickly. So we're going to start by looking at one of the most commonly used terms in airplane safety that's thrown around a lot, and that is the black box. So what exactly are we talking about here, Lucy? What, what is a black box? So a black box is a recording device that's put into every single aircraft and many ships and other travelling devices that basically functions to record every single thing that happens in that vehicle. So in the case of the plane, it records every single... Um, everything that the flight attendants and the pilot says over the, over the microphone, um, everything, every button that's pushed, um, and all of the readouts from all of the, um, all of the devices and measures that we have to make sure we know what's going on with the plane, like, you know, how much fuel we have, that sort of thing. And it's actually really interesting because a plane nowadays, you may not think about it, when you've seen a cockpit, it's full of dials and knobs and gizmos and things like that. They all serve really important airplane functions and all of those pieces of information, headings, velocities, engine status, engine bearing levels and vibration on the motors, conditions of the fuel lines, all of those things are captured by an instrument on the plane and also stored on this black box. And basically the function of the black box is that if a plane goes down, whoever whoever looks through the wreckage of that plane and whoever that plane belongs to can find out exactly what happened. So basically it keeps the plane's story and we can figure out what went wrong or what went right or what um, pilots were seeing. And, that, and it solves a big problem because it's very hard to actually figure out what happened in an accident after the fact unless you know the full story. Sometimes we're lucky enough to interview pilots afterwards and say what was going on. But if it's such a catastrophic failure, you don't actually get any information about what happened. So the history of the black box is actually quite interesting and does have an Australian connection. So as we were alluding to before, when accidents happen, um, in particular in the 1950s when commercial jets were just taking off literally as a concept, there have been a couple of series of accidents, and we'll actually speak about those soon because they're very interesting. But Australian scientists was involved in investigating them, and no one knew why these planes had gone down, and no one had any information that they could figure out. So the scientists and engineers working on it couldn't actually get to the bottom to try and make these planes safer. So one one chemistry engineer from Australia 
David Warren, was actually trying to figure out this topic, and he, and he outlined his ideas uh, in a paper, which he called A Device for Assisting Investigation into Aircraft Accidents in 1954. And he built a model, basically, to record information about the fuel, about the plane, about the heading, and capture it all so that they could use it to understand what exactly happened to the plane in the moments leading up to the accident. The name that they gave the project originally was the ARL Flight Memory Unit, and there's actually an example, a replica of the original model that they built. Sorry, not a replica, but the original model um, displayed in the Science Museum in Melbourne for you to go and have a look at. Now, these black boxes didn't really enter widespread use, obviously, into the 1960s and 70s, where they really became a standard measure for all airplanes to take with a lot of information captured. I'm guessing if I was to like go to the museum and stuff to go look at one of these black boxes, it would be a physical black box, right? That's why it was named that? Well, it's actually quite interesting that you, you ask about it because a black box isn't necessarily specifically to do with the concept of being physically black because that would obviously be very hard to find. And the point of these is that they're really easy to find in the wreckage of a plane, which imagine that your plane burns mm. up. It's hard to find a black thing in the middle of black. So what we do is we actually paint all black boxes bright orange. So then they're really easily visible to people trying to search for it in the ocean or in wreckage or anywhere else. Orange is not a natural colour, which makes it easy to spot in almost any environment. Now, the black box comes from a term that all the information about the plane's details goes into this box and it's sort of stored there. And that means sort of all the information goes in, so it's just a black box that monitors everything. But no information comes out. Yeah. And so this is where the science comes in because there's a scientific concept of a black, of a black box or a black body. Black body, that's the word I'm looking for, which is basically a body that absorbs um, electromagnetic radiation but does not emit any electromagnetic radiation. And that's where the name black box actually comes from. And it's also a bit of a joke because if your plane's gone down and it has physically crashed and there's burnt wreckage everywhere, it's probably likely to be scarred with a bit of black anyway. <laughs> so it's a bit of an ironic name but also a scientific one. So black boxes enable us to actually understand what happened inside the plane at all points during the flight and actually figure out what was going on. Nowadays, they're a lot more advanced because aside from the black box, there's also information that's sent back to the manufacturer's home base continuously. And this is aircraft information status. So, for example, in a Boeing plane, um, the engine information, the engine readouts telling you the temperature, the, how the bearings are going, whether or not it's vibrating a lot, how the motor's running, all that information is sent back to the Boeing headquarters and they use it to actually monitor the plane and increase fuel performance and energy efficiency by seeing how they actually go in everyday runs. So this information was also similar information is used to actually capture and improve the planes. Um, so they you can use a combination of this stuff that's transmitted back automatically as well as the black box which captures everything um, to really help piece together what's happened in any types of incidents like this. So we're going to start looking at the early history of jet flights. Now the de Havilland Comet was the first commercial jet plane um, transport and they, they brought it in 1952. So for, for reference, jet airplanes really only started in about 1945-1946 for military applications and it wasn't until 1952 that they actually made the first jet plane for commercial use. And you know when they, when they launched it, it was phenomenal because it was so much faster, so much more efficient than all these other planes out there and it flew at much higher altitudes because it didn't need actual air to you know to get the propeller to cut through the problem was within two years of these planes going into service 1954 they started falling out of the sky now these were the first commercial jet planes to ever really go up there so no one really understood what was happening to these planes and they were they were well-engineered planes and they had a lot of e effort go into them 
one of the reasons when you're flying in a jet plane, since you've got a high altitude, you actually have to pressurize the cabin. And you feel the ears popping when you're in a plane. That's actual pressurization process going on. It maintains the inside of the plane at a normal, comfortable pressure that we're used to, even though the pressure outside the plane is much lower. Now, this all introduces a lot of weird forces inside the mechanics of the structure of the plane that people didn't really understand because um, they never really had a lot of examples of it. And what happened with these comets is they literally started falling apart in the air and on the ground, often to catastrophic effects. And what it meant was that they really couldn't figure out what was going on. And they really didn't understand what was happening to these planes physically. I'm guessing this was before the time of black boxes? Yeah, that's right. This black box hadn't been invented. And this is one of the actual big drivers to, to come up with something like the black box to help solve this crisis. Now, what was actually going on this, in this plane was a series of fatigue failures. So if you take a... Look, a metal beam or not, not even metal, a beam of any sort of material, imagine it in a function. So imagine we have a, a metal beam or a bridge between two points and it's exposed to the air. So it has pressures on it. Um, there's wind blowing, uh, rain, people walking on it. All of these, all of these create movements. So the bridge In moves the up beam. and down. The bridge, the bridge flexes up and down according to its environment, and this can cause what we call fatigue. So basically every sort of... Um, every time you go through an action, like taking off and landing or even flying, the vibration from that, the vibration from flight, the vibration from hitting the ground, all of that makes and stresses and bends all the metals involved in the plane and in a repeated process. So when you start doing... You know, they had like 13,000 or so pressurization cycles, going up to full pressure, coming down to full pressure, going up to full pressure, coming down. And think about like blowing blowing up and deflating a balloon over and over and over again. And over time, this weakened or fatigued the metal. And if you want to see an example of this, take a paperclip and bend it back and forward over and over and over and over again. Eventually, it's just going to snap. Yeah. And that's an example of fatiguing. In these planes, it was yes. happening to a more and a different type of actual outcome. When you have fatigue in, in metals and large structures like a plane, instead of going through a full shear like you do on a paper, it actually tends to have small cracks starting to occur. Go. You said um, fatiguing. Actually, the term you're looking for is fatigue failure. Yeah. Not <laughs> okay, fatigue failure. So what they found in these comets they have on comet was that the failures that were occurring were around the seal points, were around the windows. And the cracks that were occurring, eventually they discovered through a lot of testing, a lot of actual scientific research into the material science of these planes, was that the cracks around the windows were the parts that were breaking off. And effectively, they were the weak point. And once they started to go, because they were all along the entire side of the plane, the entire plane basically just fell apart. Um, and so the reason that the um, windows were the weak point of the plane was because at that time, instead of having the rounded edges that we have in airplane windows today, we actually had entirely square glass panes like we do in our homes. Which makes complete sense if you think about it. Yeah, that's, that's where we start because we design what we're used to. But the problem with that is that right angles create huge stress points in any material. As soon as you have like one single point at which all of the stress and force can concentrate that point is the most vulnerable point in any structure. And they had hundreds of those all along all the windows of the plane, all these really high concentration points. And basically this meant that they were much more likely to undergo fatigue failure than any other point on the plane. And because there were such vital points, that led to the entire plane disintegrating out of it because the, due to sheer number. 
So are we talking about failings? Are we talking about like a plane in the air just magically all the parts breaking apart? Like disassembling itself oh. basically? Is that what happens? Well one, once well, you have essentially but over time. Yeah. Once so. you have one point go, it makes all more pressure on other points and it slowly builds up and builds up until it gets to a critical point where there's enough values there that it just sort of it's like a landslide at that point. You have one part crack, and then you have another part crack, and then all of a sudden, especially when you go through a landing or a pressurization at highest pressure, that's the highest amount of stress on the plane when you're at highest altitude, and then it just... Um, a good analogy is, think of cracking an egg for, um, for a meal. You're crack, you're, and you kind of you t nudge it gently on the edge of the table, and that kind of creates a little, a little crack, and then you put your thumb in it, and you break the egg apart. And what basically what you get is you get a series of cracks outwards from the pressure point that you've made with your finger, but then the entirety of the egg just cracks in half. And so that's what And happened. that's what's happening to these planes. And so they undertook a really big program of maintenance, engineering, material science to get to the bottom of this incident. And out of this, we had a whole new field of aircraft maintenance. So what they do now is actually monitor all the cracks, and they inspect each plane after every flight. So you, you hear a joke about your plane being delayed because there's engineering maintenance work going on, but what they're doing there is actually monitoring the status of the plane, doing full inspections, looking for all the cracks, and monitoring them after each flight to track the progress and go, okay, look, you've done 500 flights. We've seen that you're probably now about here. We'll, we'll track this crack. That crack's okay for now, but if it gets any worse, we'll need to repair it at this point because we know how they're all progressing. So our planes in the air are really strongly monitored and tracked so we can understand what's happening to them, how many flights and cycles they've gone through, when we need to repair them, when we need to replace parts, because we understand the fatigue process. There's a quite famous example of, example of another factor that led to um, a plane literally coming apart in the air, and this was in 1988, um, Aloha Airlines Flight 243, which was a Boeing 737, um, experienced what everyone describes as an explosive decompression Bursting during Bursting the balloon almost. <laughs> um, so basically what happened is there was a corrosion issue. So um, the uh, window, the cockpit window wasn't sealed properly. Um, they used a sealant that allowed water, uh, salt water um, to get into the, the metal of the plane and this caused corrosion. And it was enough of a weakness and enough of a crack that during climb, this aircraft literally had the entire top of the aircraft rip off. And so the reason the entire top of the plane was open to the air. And so why this happened was this: the skin spice, the part with actually bonding the skin to the plane, had let moisture in. Moisture, specifically salt water, as you get in a coastal environment like Hawaii, salt is enhances corrosion, makes corrosion happen faster. So that's why things near the seaside rust faster. Um, and this really made the corrosion happen at a lot faster rate. And when they went through the, the uh, pressurization process in the plane as they were climbing, like we talked about before, the forces that were exerted on the plane during that basically got to the tipping point of this plane and the roof just basically off. sheared off. And if you look at the pictures of this, it's phenomenal so basically the front half of the plane it just doesn't have a roof it's it's just an open air plane uh despite this they did actually manage to land the plane safely and i think there was only one fatality yeah 
So there was only one fatality, and that was unfortunately the, the flight attendant who was standing up at the time, um, who was sucked out when the explosive decompression happened. But everyone else who was wearing their seatbelts during takeoff was actually quite okay. Um, and they flew and landed with everyone strapped in very tightly. Um, the, the plane, and it was actually a phenomenal movie made about this, and it was a great effort on behalf of the crew, the air crew and the pilots, to get that plane down safely with no other casualties. Is this why we stress people wearing seatbelts so much? During- it's, it's one of the reasons, yeah. Um, mostly because if anything does happen like that, with the pressurisation, then you have people held in, but you also have people not moving around when in the takeoff and landing, which are the riskiest parts of the flight. That pressurization, depressurization process, plus all the forces on the plane during takeoff and landing, are some of the most dangerous parts of the flight. Once you're in cruise mode, it's generally much safer. I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely way too cool for normal flights. I need my nice convertible um, top optional flights. <laughs> and it's and it's a great uh, it's a great example of what pilots can do to keep a plane running safely, and shows the importance of maintaining good training for the air crew and the pilots, staying calm and dealing with the circumstances. So they all train for these kind of exercises and because of that, they managed to get everyone back safely um, and land without any further damage. And that was a a tremendous story of skill, experience and bravery on the left. Okay, so we've talked a lot about what can actually go wrong with a plane, but how likely is it that I'm going to be on a plane one day and something is going to go wrong? The answer is not particularly likely. So um, we're looking at some statistics here from US Department of Transportation, and basically there's a 1 in 11 million chance that you will be killed in an airplane crash. To put that in perspective, there's a 1 in 3.7 million chance that you will be killed by a shark. Which is still really low, as we talked about in a previous show. That's really low. And a 1 in 5,000 chance that you will be killed in a car crash. And so the comparison point, when that's, you know, big numbers like that are really hard to grasp onto. But what that means is per 100 million passenger miles, so many people who've flown 100 million miles, right? People have flown that far is 0.001 deaths per 100 million passenger miles in airplanes. Now, that that seems really small, but in comparison, there's 0.05 deaths per 100 million passenger miles in buses and trains, and 0.72, which is pretty close to one. um, (laughs) Deaths per 100 million passenger miles in so that that requires so for every if you drove a hundred mile hundred million miles or everyone drove hundred million miles it's going to be equate to basically statistically likely one death. Actually, you're you're seven you're seventy two times more likely to die driving a hundred million miles in a car than you are to die driving a hundred million miles in a plane. Driving a hundred million miles. Please don't drive planes, guys. On the ground, that that would be a really slow way to travel <laughs> in a plane. Now, what's really funny about all these statistics as well is that uh, ninety five point seven percent of people actually survive airplane crashes and major incidents and a lot of that comes down to a lot of the great work done by pilots like the pilot of the Qantas flight 32 who landed the plane safely or the uh, miracle pilot captain Chelsea Sully Sullenberg who landed an A320 in the middle of the Hudson River in New York in freezing conditions he was another one of those pilots who really managed to make the most of a really bad situation and saved everyone's lives on those planes so you actually have a really high percentage chance of surviving an aircraft incident so just because something goes wrong on a plane doesn't mean you're actually going to die and there's a really low risk associated with that a lot of that comes down to skill of the air crew and a lot of great science and engineering work
So a big thank you goes out to all the scientists and engineers who work hard on getting to the bottom of these mysteries, not just the airplane designers and aeronautical engineers, but also the material scientists and engineers who figure out how our metals work and all these processes happen, and as well as also the very brave and highly trained crew, air crew, flight attendants, pilots, um, and cabin managers who actually make sure that in an accident, everyone's safe and gets out and is dealt with appropriately. So good luck to the search out there to find missing Malaysian flight. But our airplanes are safe and a lot of work goes into keeping them safe. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. On this week's episode, we'll be covering plane safety and what actually goes into keeping aircraft safe and the history and development of actual significant steps in airplane safety, including the black box, dealing with corrosion fatigue, and how we can actually keep our planes flying when disaster strikes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.